Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, uh, you'll find that on page 878. From all the way back in chapter 9, Jesus has been on a journey, uh, making his way to his final destination of his earthly ministry, which is the city of Jerusalem. And this morning, he is going to make a big splash as he finally arrives in Jerusalem and begins to fulfill his messianic destiny. So we're in Luke chapter 19, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 28. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so last week, Jesus told the parable of the ten minas in order to correct the false expectation of the crowd that he's going to establish the kingdom as soon as he gets to Jerusalem, and also to encourage his disciples to have the proper perspective and how we live our lives until he returns. And now as we pick up again here in verse 28, Luke tells us that after he had said these things, when he finished the parable, he went on from Jericho towards Jerusalem until he came near to Bethphage and Bethany. Bethphage and Bethany were were little towns right on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They are the suburbs of Jerusalem. Uh, Just before you get to the Mount of Olives, which, which leads up to Jerusalem. And so you may remember that some of Jesus' closest friends, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, lived in Bethany. Well, as they get close, Jesus tells two of the disciples to go into town, and, and he says that when they get there, they will find a colt, a, a young donkey that has never been ridden by anybody, and they are to take the colt and bring it back to him. And then he tells them that if anyone should ask what they're doing, with the colt, that they simply need to reply that the Lord has need of it. And so in verse 32, they go into town, and sure enough, 
there's a colt tied up exactly where Jesus said it would be. And so they untie the colt, and sure enough, its owners say, hey, what are y'all doing with that colt? And the disciples say, the Lord has need of it. And sure enough, that seems to be a sufficient response for the people to let them go. Now, this, this whole episode is interesting, and it's even a little bit strange. And it raises the question, has, has this whole thing been prearranged by Jesus in advance, or is this an example of him demonstrating supernatural knowledge and power? Well, at first, my inclination was to think that, that this was all prearranged by Jesus. Maybe he had set something up with Lazarus beforehand. Hey, I'm going to need a donkey when I'm on my way to Jerusalem. But the more I studied this week, the more I became convinced that the accent of the story falls on the element of surprise, right? Verse 32 says they found it just as he had told them. And so if this was all prearranged, then it wouldn't really be remarkable that they found it just as he had said. That's what you would expect. It would be odd if it wasn't that way. And so I do think that we should see here a demonstration of Jesus' supernatural knowledge and providential control in ordering this event. So the disciples return, and they bring the cult to Jesus, and then there are four details here that communicate the significance of, of what is happening. Right, so first of all, the fact that this cult has never been ridden points to a royal purpose that it has been reserved for. Right? Nobody uses a king's animal except for the king. Right? Next, Jesus doesn't climb up on the colt by himself, but the disciples set him on it, as servants would do for a king. And then, because this donkey has never been ridden, it doesn't have a saddle, and so the disciples laid their cloaks over it for Jesus to sit on instead. And as they make their way towards Jerusalem, other disciples are laying their cloaks down on the road for him to ride over. Right? Now, this is the, the ancient equivalent to, to rolling out the red carpet. Or, or perhaps a gentleman laying his, his jacket over a puddle for a lady to walk over. All right, this is a, a demonstration of deference. This action is communicating and showing the value and importance of Jesus. The disciples are saying here, I would rather you ride over my cloak that I have to wear than for you to have to ride and, and step in the dirt. And in fact, the only other time we see something like this happening in the Bible is at the coronation of a king in 2 Kings chapter 9. All right, and all of this should make perfect sense because Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 indicates that this is exactly what will happen when the Messiah arrives. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so as Jesus and the disciples get closer to Jerusalem, they are working out this prophecy of Zechariah. Jesus rides toward the city on a donkey as the messianic king. And in verse 37, we see that the disciples begin to rejoice and to praise God for all the mighty works they have seen through Jesus, as they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And now keep in mind that this is all the disciples, right? And by that, we don't just mean the 12 apostles, 
but the larger group of people who have come to faith in Jesus through his ministry and who have begun to follow him since then. All right? They are, part of a, a, are a small part of a larger crowd that is, is interested but not yet committed to Jesus, which in turn is a small part of a much larger group of hundreds of thousands of people who would be coming to Jerusalem at this time in order to celebrate Passover. And so as all of these people are traveling, walking together, the disciples of Jesus are making this big scene on the way with, with Jesus on a donkey. And the meaning is certainly not lost by some of the Pharisees who are traveling with them, because as they see and hear everything that's going on, they tell Jesus to rebuke the disciples. And say, this is completely inappropriate. You need to tell them to stop this. And most likely they interpret this as blasphemous because they don't affirm Jesus as the Messiah. But perhaps they're also afraid of drawing the wrong kind of, of interest and attention from the Romans. You know, nothing provoked swift and violent military action like someone proclaiming that a king had arisen somewhere in the empire. But in response, Jesus insists that if the disciples were silent, the very stones on the ground would cry out in praise. Now, I think this is, is funny, right? because stones are kind of the epitome of an inanimate object. Right? They just sit there, they don't make noise, they literally don't do anything at all. They are truly inanimate objects. And yet Jesus says here that, that what is happening in this moment is so significant that it has cosmic implications to the degree that the physical creation itself is at the very brink of breaking out. And eventually it will break out, as we'll come to see later. So Jesus has almost completed the journey, and the king will finally arrive as we pick up again, beginning in verse 41. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So the summer after my senior year of high school, my youth group took a, a mission trip to New York City. And in, in what is still one of the coolest experiences of my life, we were, we were driving in a tunnel, I think it's called the Lincoln Tunnel, and, and so you spend several minutes not being able to see anything except the car that's in front of you because you're in a tunnel. And you're winding your way from New Jersey into New York, but then as you finally come out of the tunnel, it's like, boom, New York City is right there in front of you, and, and it's really an amazing sight. Well, Jerusalem was the same way in the ancient world. You, you climbed well over 3,000 feet up the Mount of Olives, and then once you got to the top and looked down, there was Jerusalem in, in all of its splendor. Well, as we pick up here in verse 41, when Jesus finally sees the city, he begins to weep, which seems totally different from the mood of the previous verses. But what we see here is that Jesus understands the big picture. 
Right? While, while many of the people in this crowd may still be under the impression that he's about to establish the kingdom upon arrival, he knows that despite this triumphal entry, the majority of the people are ultimately going to reject him. And because of that, God is going to execute judgment against them. In fact, this is, this is super subtle, and, and it's even hard to know for certain whether or not it's intentional. But you'll notice that Luke doesn't actually refer to Jerusalem here. He simply calls it the city. Now, the name Jerusalem means city of peace. And, and throughout the story, Luke has just been talking about Jerusalem all, all the time. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And yet, now that Jesus gets here, after everything that has built up to this moment, you could see this as Luke indicating that this is no longer the city of peace. That this is now a city of judgment. And in verse 42, Jesus laments, I wish you did understand the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, in rejecting Jesus, the people in Jerusalem are rejecting peace, and they are choosing judgment instead. In verse 43, Jesus says that a time is coming when enemies will set up a barricade and surround the city and trap all of the people inside, and that eventually they will tear it down to the ground in, in mass violence with 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 numerous casualties. And this happens to be an exact description of what ends up happening in the year 70, as the Romans completely destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple in response to a rebellion. And as, as we uh, know from historical accounts, it was gruesome and merciless. In the end, over a million Jews were killed and another 100,000 of them were taken into lifelong slavery. And Jesus insists that this is going to happen because the people did not recognize the time of their visitation. Now, in the Old Testament, God is said to, to visit his people, which refers to a momentous occasion of either salvation or judgment. And so, for example, in Exodus chapter 4, as Moses and Aaron arrive in Egypt and tell the people that the Lord has sent them to deliver them, the people rejoice that God has visited his people. In the book of Ruth, we saw that when the, the famine in the land of Judah ended, Naomi and Ruth heard the news that God had visited his people. Right? Well, in the person of Jesus, God has truly and ultimately visited his people to bring them salvation. But again, Jesus knows that they are overwhelmingly going to reject him. Had the people embraced Jesus, the destruction of Jerusalem would have been avoided. And so it has all come to this. Everything that Jesus has been preparing for his whole life, and as he sees the city in this climactic moment, he becomes overwhelmed, and he weeps for the people in the city that God had made a covenant with, but who had broken the covenant over and over again, and who are about to reject the offer of the new covenant. In the same way that Jeremiah wept over the coming destruction of Jerusalem before the exiles, Jesus weeps over the coming destruction of Jerusalem in the future. But while the exiles ultimately had a hope of future restoration, there is none offered here. You see, Jesus is the restoration. And if you miss that, then you miss it. There is nothing else. God has sent salvation 
in and through him. And so what started as a jubilant celebration becomes an occasion for lament as Jesus considers where this is going. And we'll see what happens next as we pick up again in verse 45. It says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And so as we pick up again in in verse 45, we know from the other Gospels that this is actually the next day. So this is Monday of Passover week. And on this day, Jesus goes into the temple and begins to drive out the people who sold. Now, what's going on here is that people were buying and selling animals to be sacrificed. Again, it's getting close to Passover, which was one of the few times a year when all Jews were expected to come to Jerusalem to celebrate, part of which involved offering sacrifices. And as we've already said, Jesus, like hundreds of thousands of other people, have have made this trek over many miles from all around the empire. And if making a, a journey like that on foot with the whole family isn't challenging enough, think about trying to keep up with with animals in the process, right? Or, or on top of that, think about going to all that effort only to find once you get to the temple that the animal that you've brought technically doesn't meet the requirements to be sacrificed. Perhaps there's a, a minor defect that you hadn't noticed, or, or maybe something happens to it along the way that disqualifies it from being used, right? That would be the worst. And so, out of the goodness of their hearts, the temple officials offered everyone a service, right? Instead of going to all that trouble, spare yourself the the, the time and effort and conveniently buy one of our pre-approved sacrificial animals once you come to the temple, guaranteed to be uh, right for sacrificing. And and you can do this, uh, again, once you get here, for the low, low price of way more than what you can actually afford, Are you coming from a different part of the empire? No problem at all. We have money changers who can convert your money into the Judean currency for an additional not-so-small fee. And so the bottom line is that the spiritual leadership in Jerusalem was taking advantage of the people. They know that the people have a legitimate spiritual need, and they're using that to make money for themselves. So Jesus shows up to the temple, and he sees what's happening, and he confronts those who are doing this. He quotes from Isaiah 56, 7, and he says, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. And then he says, But you have made it a den of robbers. And in response, Jesus begins to drive out these people. Now that that phrase, drive out, we have to understand, is a forceful phrase. It's the same word that that is used in other contexts to refer to Jesus casting out demons in exorcism. And and again, uh, from from what we understand, uh, this this was a a, a violent uh, encounter. And if you think about it, Jesus can't just walk up and say, hey guys, I don't think you should be doing this right now. You should really consider stopping. 
I don't care what you think. Who are you? And so we know from the other Gospels that, that Jesus gets very aggressive. He gets loud. He, he flips all of the tables of the money changers, and he makes a whip to drive these people out. Now, none of the accounts explicitly say whether or not Jesus actually beats people, but the point is that he does whatever he needs to do, whatever needs to be done to restore the sanctity of the temple. We see that there is a righteous anger. There is a holy violence that is at work here. This is an act of divine judgment. Now, it's been a while, but but in our study through the book of Malachi, we saw in chapter 3 the promise of the coming Messiah. The Lord said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And we talked about, how the, fact, about the fact that the people think that they want the Messiah. But when the Messiah actually shows up, they might find that he's more than they've bargained for, as he is going to execute a forceful cleansing of the people. And now that has come to pass as Jesus comes into his temple and begins to address the blatant corruption that has come to characterize it. And from that point, Luke tells us in verse 47 that Jesus was teaching every day in the temple, no doubt drawing large crowds. Meanwhile, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, all of the religious leadership in Jerusalem, are trying to figure out how to destroy him. Now, that's yet another strong word. They're not just trying to stop Jesus or discredit him. They want to destroy him. All right, spiritually, politically, financially, he is a threat to their status. They've got a pretty good thing going here, and he's starting to get in the way of it. The problem is that all of the common people are mesmerized by Jesus. Luke tells us that they were hanging on his every word. And so the religious leaders can't do anything to him, at least not publicly, and this sets the stage for what is to come over the next several weeks. So in our passage this morning, Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem in obvious fulfillment of Old Testament expectations, and his arrival is is characterized by joy, by grief, and by judgment. And as we consider the application that the passage has for our lives, we should recognize that the same dynamics in the story are at work in our lives today, as Jesus offers us salvation and then expects faithfulness from his people. And so first of all, have you embraced the salvation that Jesus has come to bring? Do you know the things that make for peace? Jesus has come to Jerusalem and he has already declared that he is going to be rejected by the people and he is going to be executed through crucifixion. But but what happens behind and beyond the, the physical act of crucifixion is an invisible act of divine judgment, where Jesus pays the penalty for sin that we deserve for 
ourselves. He makes forgiveness available if we will repent of our sins and trust in what he has done to save us. It's not about being a better person. It's not about doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. Everything comes down to trusting in what Jesus has done for us. And he calls us to submit our lives to him as the one true king. But then secondly, the Lord expects faithfulness from his people. Jesus comes into the temple and he is outraged by what he finds happening there. And what's, what's the issue? Well, there are a lot of issues in one sense. There's greed and oppression and apathy. But what does Jesus say to them? He says, it is written. Right? God has told you in his word what he expects in his temple. But you're not operating according to the design. You've taken it and you have corrupted it into something else. And, and it made me wonder this week, what would Jesus think if he came into our church? What would Jesus think if he came to our church? Hopefully, I, I hope he would not be violently angry, at the very least, but would he be completely pleased and satisfied with what he found? Or would he be unsatisfied with, with what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it? Are we as his new covenant people, seeking to be guided in his word by all things? Or are we caught up in the web of tradition or or pragmatism or or our own personal preferences? Of course, this isn't simply limited to talking about the structure and the order of, of our worship services because the church is primarily the gathering of the people. So what about us individually? If if the Lord came to our church, would he find people who are committed to the privileges and the responsibilities of church membership? Or would he find people who are just looking for whatever they can get out of church for themselves? Would he find people who love each other in such a way that it causes the world to take notice and ask, how do you possibly explain what's happening here? Or would he find people that look just like any other group of people? Do we even know how to answer the question? Are are we familiar enough with what the New Testament teaches about the church to know whether or not we're following the scriptures? As we think about it, we might be tempted to think that these aren't really important questions. But if you read the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, it's obvious that Jesus pays very careful attention to what happens in local churches. And and he finds things that he is pleased with, things that he is displeased with, and that is not inconsequential at all. See, Jerusalem and the temple had some wonderfully amazing moments in history. But over time, the people got off track, and they ultimately failed to accomplish their purpose. And that same danger lurks for churches as well. By nature, we all tend to drift. We've been seeing that repeatedly in our discipleship class over church history this quarter. And so it takes intentionally coming back to God's word over and over again to make sure we're doing what he's called us to do, the way he's called us to do it, and making adjustments if we find that we're not. We can't build our church on, on what we think will work best 
or compare ourselves to what the church down the street is doing, or, or just be satisfied with doing what we've always done in the past, our standard is and must always be the Word of God. And so this morning, may we not miss the salvation that Jesus has come to bring, and may we respond with faithfulness to His Word as His church. Let's pray together.